Hi, friends. Thanks for coming to church today. Those of you who are watching online, we're thrilled you're here as well. We're in the middle. We're actually in between message series. But today, I'm going to look at a psalm with you. A psalm from the hymn book of God's people. It's Psalm 139. It's a psalm of David. Now, I'll summarize the song in a sentence by paraphrasing Old Testament scholar William Brown. In Psalm 139, David celebrates God's invasion of our privacy. David thanks God for his intrusiveness because David's been blessed by God's nosiness. What do you think about that? Do you welcome God into every area of your life? And would you encourage God to feel free to rummage through all your stuff? Well, for some reason, David thinks that's a good idea, such that he asked God to do it and wrote a song about it, encouraging us to do the same. Okay, before we hear David out, let's invite God to help us hear him. Because this message may be a little hard to hear. Pray with me. Lord, we invite you to open our eyes this morning so that we might see wonderful things in your teaching. Soften our hearts, Lord. Make us ready to listen with our lives. Help us pay close attention to your voice and close attention to our souls. We pray this today in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Amen. Have you ever gone spelunking? I remember the first time I explored a cave. It was Alabaster Cavern State Park in Woodward County, Oklahoma. The park is home to the largest publicly accessible natural gypsum cave in the world. Explorers can observe pink alabaster and white alabaster. You can even find the the rare black alabaster, which is only found in three of the world's most exotic locales, Italy, China, and northwest Oklahoma. I recall being fascinated by the stalactites and the stalagmites. and the cave walls that are carved out from ancient underground waterways. But but I'll tell you, my favorite part of the cave was the bats. The cavern, uh, the caverns are home to five different species of bat. At last count, almost twenty thousand of them. But friends, nobody would call my experience at Alabaster Cavern State Park an adventure in spelunking. I was an eight-year-old on a guided school tour. The alabaster caverns are completely lit. The walkways feature code-compliant stairs with handrails. My friend, that's not spelunking. If you really want to go spelunking, you'll need helmets and headlamps. You you might need a zip line and and, and rappelling gear. And and sure, you you may come upon beautiful rock formations and underground waterfalls, but you'll also encounter bugs and rabid bats as you contort your way through narrow crevices leading to steep cliffs. 
The closest I've ever come to spelunking is the Travel Channel. And the Travel Channel warned me if I'm claustrophobic, if I'm afraid of heights, afraid of the dark, or afraid of creepy crawly creatures that cling to my neck hairs, maybe spelunking is not for me. They say the first rule of spelunking is never spelunk alone. I've adopted and adapted the rule. I never spelunk at all. But there is a cave that I have been brave enough to explore. It took me a while to work up the courage, but I've been exploring its deep, dark depths for decades. I'd love to take some of you experienced spelunkers with me sometime, but I'm not sure you're brave enough. I'm not sure you're ready. You see, today I'm talking about exploring the caverns of the soul. Look, I'm going to warn you. The first rule of cave exploration applies just as surely to soul exploration. You never want to explore your soul alone. In fact, it's so treacherous and scary, you'll want to take an experienced guide with you, a guide who knows his way around. David knows this, and that's why he prays in Psalm 139, verse 23, Search me, God, and know my heart. Friends, one of the most generous things God does is volunteer to help us search our souls. Well, one of the greatest gifts God gives us is the free offer to take us on a tour of our hearts so we can see the truth about ourselves. See, God wants to examine your stress with you and ask, why? Why are you so uptight? Why do you take on too much? Why can't you say no? God wants to take a closer look at your sharp tongue and your temper and ask, where does that come from? Why do you keep hurting people with your criticism and severity? He wants to hold your hand and inspect the pain, the wounds, the bitterness behind your reactions. And he wants to bring it into the light so you can be healed. But the problem is, that scares the holy heck out of most of us. Nobody wants to be exposed. Nobody wants to be reminded of their failure. Nobody wants to see the creepy, crawly things lining the walls of their souls. So our simple solution is, never search them. Hey, if you never search your soul, you'll never even see the tarantula lurking in the corner with all of its eyes. Tarantulas have eight eyes. If you never enter the cave, you never have to worry about the eight eyes looking at you. And you'll never have to worry about the 200 babies it's carrying on its back either. You'll be fine until one of those babies gets big enough to climb out of a crack in your soul and bite you or bite someone you love. But but, but friends, what if we followed the sage wisdom of the late author and lecturer Joseph Campbell 
who asserted, the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. My dear friend, believe it or not, the best things about you are in you. You may be able to identify some of those things about you, but God knows where all the hidden treasures are buried within you. He knows how you're wired. He knows your strengths. He knows your potential. He he knows your unique and specific significance to this world. He knows your immeasurable value. And he knows about the creatures creeping in the dark corners of your soul, ready to pounce. Well, here's my question for you this morning. Will you allow God to shine the light of his love under the clefts and crevices of your heart so, so you can find the treasure buried within. As I said a moment ago, God knows his way around your soul. Knowing this, David begins his song in Psalm 139, verse 1. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Yes, God knows all. But David says specifically, God knows me. This is a very personal psalm. The, the verb searched is hakar. It means to explore, to spy out, to investigate. The, the verb to know is yada. It's used throughout the psalm to describe the all-seeing gaze of God, and it implies personal, intimate knowledge. Friends, God has searched the depths of your soul. He's turned over every rock. He's seen every crack and fissure, and he knows you through and through. How does that make you feel? Understand what that means. It means God didn't just see what you did. He knows why you did it. It means God knows how your fear of failure provoked you to embarrass yourself by losing your temper again. It means God knows how your jealousy prevented you from celebrating a friend's success. It means God knows how your insecurity triggered you such that you belittled your daughter, stripping away more of her self-esteem. Of course, nobody enjoys searching their souls, much less inviting someone else in to search with them. Nobody in their right mind would find pleasure in someone shining a spotlight on their sin and shame. But my friend, what if in so doing, that person was able to help us heal? What if they could help us become whole so we could stop humiliating ourselves and hurting the people we love? See, if you want to fix the outsides, you got to let him heal the insides. But, but most of us are too obsessed with our outsides. And most of us would rather keep our insides inside. Thank you very much. We're interested in optics. We're all about perception management. We want to look smart. We want to look spiritual. We want to look honorable. Like that woman with the witty but profound podcast that all of our friends listen to. Or that leader who our colleagues keep quoting. Or the guy who continually posts photos of his awesome life to his awesome Instagram account. But friends, God's not impressed with superficiality. In a context during the history of God's people in which he was choosing a king for his people, Samuel the prophet thought he picked the perfect candidate. The bloke he chose was tall, dark, and handsome. The way kings are supposed to look. But God disagreed. 
In 1 Samuel 16, 7, he said to the prophet, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. He's right, you know. We obsess over externals. When we look in the mirror, we determine our personal price tag by assessing that which is most visible, success or beauty or a personality. But but the God of heaven measures a woman or a man with a different scale. Literally, verse 7 says, the Lord sees to the heart. We're talking about a supernatural X-ray vision that God uses to see through your soul to your thoughts, your feelings, your attitudes, your ambitions. The verse says, God sees right through you. Jesus said something similar in Luke chapter 16, verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of others. But God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. See, the question of the day is, when God looks into your soul, what does he see? I'm not not asking you what do we see. We we may not know you well enough to see what God sees. What does God see? Love, joy, peace, and patience? Or bitterness, discontentment, stress, annoyance? Many of us have spent a lifetime managing our image while neglecting our souls. We, We strive to polish our outsides but put little thought into improving our insides. But God prioritizes our insides for a reason. He's not capricious or arbitrary about it. God knows what's in you eventually comes out of you. Look, I can set goals for what I want to do as a leader of our church community, but I have to understand who I am as a person, who I am on the inside will manifest itself and what I do as a leader. If on the inside I have nagging fears of the future, Those fears will find their way into my leadership, the way I make decisions, the things I say, the things I don't say. If I have a bias toward putting myself first, selfishness and selfish ambition will reveal themselves in my actions as a leader, the way I use my time, the way I treat my colleagues. This is true in parenting. I can set goals for my kids, their their education, their health, their, their friendships. I can have the perfect plan for their future. But I wonder if my kids would be better served if I gave a little more attention to my character. What if their daddy weren't so stressed out? What if their daddy were a little more patient? What if their father faced everyday problems with the peace that comes from faith in his heavenly father? I wonder how that would impact their future. Friends, I found again and again who I am is more important than what I do because who I am ultimately determines what I do and how I do it. Look again at the verse in 1 Samuel 16. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay, before we move on, let's uh, uh, apply this text in a different direction. What if we picked spouses like God picked kings. Single friends, hear me out a minute. Hmm? We are too easily impressed by charming good looks. 
I'm telling you now, charm and good looks grow old when the charming, good-looking person makes your life miserable. Pick a spouse like God picks kings. No, I know you're not all-knowing. I I know you can't see through a person like God can. But stick around. Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He says, what's in you comes out of you. Stick around and watch that person through different seasons of life. Watch what squeezes out of their soul when life squeezes them like a vice. Watch what sloshes out when someone bumps into them. Key point. What you see then will probably be what you get later. Ah, but let's turn the spotlight back on ourselves. Maybe you're single, but you want to start dating again. Maybe you want to find love. Maybe you want to find the girl of your dreams. Here's a question. Are you ready for the girl of your dreams? Would the girl of your dreams like you if she found you today? Look, I don't say that to shame you. I say that to help you muster the courage to take God by the hand and enter the cave. Let God take you on a tour of the cavernous halls of your soul, knowing the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. What kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be a person who holds grudges or a person who's quick to forgive? Do you want to be a person who's always hiding something, a habit, a weakness, a sin? You you hide it from your coworkers, you hide it from your spouse. Do you want to be a person who's always hiding something or do you want to be someone who doesn't have anything to hide? If you set a goal to, to shed 10 pounds, I hope you succeed. But maybe you should set an additional goal to shed some of your negativity. You're complaining. Maybe you should shed some of that annoyance that's seeped into your soul because if you're honest with yourself it's making its way in your conversations and interactions as well now I think I should say this about you when God looks at your heart God doesn't get hopeless when I look in the mirror I recognize it will take more than a makeover to make me a candidate for People Magazine's Sexiest Man Alive but, but God does soulmate makeovers every day to everyone who asks. That's not to say it'll take just a day. I'm saying God searches the heart to heal the heart. It's what he does. What are you doing to intentionally expose your soul to the gracious gaze of God? Let's return to the psalm where David acknowledges in verse 2, you know when I sit and when I rise. This, frames, this phrase forms what's called a merism. A merism is a figure of speech where, where two or more words communicate a single idea. If I said I searched high and low, I mean I searched everywhere. The writer's using poetry to say God knows when you rest, God knows when you rise, and God knows everything in between. The merism suggests activities that take place at home so when you close your door, when you pull your blinds, you shut out the prying eyes of neighbors, but not the prying eyes of God. Is anybody uncomfortable with this? 
because his spine becomes more invasive in the second part of the verse where David prays, you perceive my thoughts from afar. (laughs) Even your mind is not close to him. The word thoughts translates the Hebrew word rea, but its definition includes intentions and desires. God knows what you do, what you plan to do, what you want to do. You perceive my thoughts from afar. God is far away in one sense, but he's very near in another. Verse 3, you discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. It's another merism. He's always here. When you leave home, God goes with you. He never stays behind every errand, every meeting. Just think of all the places you took God this week. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. He knows every conversation, every word of encouragement, every juicy morsel of gossip. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. And he knows it completely. He knows the words you will choose. He knows the tone in which you'll deliver it. He knows how it will be interpreted and the effect it will have on the hearer. Verse 5. You hem me in behind and before. Now, to be hemmed in might be either good or bad, depending on who's doing the hemming. Sometimes this word is translated to hem. Sometimes it's translated to bind. It means to protect It means to restrict or or even besiege. Now, you probably welcome protection, but not many people like restriction. American sentiment pleads, don't fence me in. Perhaps you bristle at the suggestion that an ever-present God puts a fence around you. But my friend, that may be just what you need. You remember my pal Snowy? So he just had his fifth birthday with doggy birthday presents and a doggy birthday cookie. Look, Snowy is so particular. You have to break up the cookie before he'll eat the cookie. Snowy does not like to do hard things. I think it's learned helplessness. <laughs> Needless to say, Snowy is an indoor dog. He's not an outdoor dog. That's because we want Snowy to live. <laughs> Not long ago, I was—I I left my house. I was taking something out to the trash, and I, when I went out the side door, the the, the glass screen door that, that that closed behind me didn't close all the way. I didn't think much of it. Snowy was just waiting at the door for me to come back, like he does. But before I came back, uh, one of my neighbors. Uh, came around walking their dog. And, and so he's got this thing with dogs. Some dogs he likes, some dogs he doesn't like. I don't know what the difference is, and I don't know what makes him choose which dogs he likes and which ones he doesn't like. But I will tell you right now, he did not like this dog. He didn't like the look of this dog. He didn't like the jive of this dog. He's done. And he sees this dog, and he does what he does, and he starts barking. And he just reaches up, and he puts his paws on the door. Well, the door wasn't latching, so that door went flying open. And Snowy made a beeline for this dog. And when I say he went for this dog, I don't mean he attacked the dog. He didn't bite the dog. But Snowy 
barked like mad and he was going crazy and he was pushing this dog the dog was no what was not on our property the dog was in the neighbor's driveway his driveway snowy didn't like that that's way too close to snowy's driveway so snowy had a beef with this dog and he kept coming at this dog and a detail i didn't tell you is this dog is easily four or five times as large as snowy right? The owner, the blessed owner is pulling on the dog, doing everything he can to hold the dog back from destroying my snowy. I find out what's happening. I, I'm probably 15 or 20 yards away. I come racing to snowy. I scoop this time. They're in the neighbor's yard by, by far. I'm scooping snowy and his white fluffiness up as he's going crazy. And I have to dump him off in our home and lock the door. Now, Snowy needs a fence. But Snowy doesn't need a fence to protect other dogs from Snowy. Snowy needs a fence to protect Snowy from Snowy. Maybe a fence is exactly what you need. Has God ever fenced you in to protect you from yourself? You ever asked him to? What if you pray, God, hem me in. Protect me from predators. Protect me from me. Build a fence around me so I can't stray. You have faith to pray that kind of prayer? You hem me in behind and before. (laughs) Then the psalmist says, you lay your hand upon me. Now, just like the previous phrase, we could interpret this verse positively or negatively. It is a good thing to have someone lay hands on you at church and pray for you. It was another thing when my mom shouted, I'm going to lay hands on you. Both Ezra and Nehemiah refer to the gracious hand of God that was upon them, which brought them favor and success. But just as many times in the Bible, God's hand on someone conveys chastisement. It all depends on on who you are and where you stand with God. See, God is with me. Maybe good news or bad. After David pens these words, he sits back in awe of the revelation. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now for David, this is a positive revelation. But even if David had a problem with it, it's not like he could do anything about it anyway. And when, when, when you first discover the truth about the inescapable God, your instinct may be to run and hide. Verse 7 asks, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You can't hide from God. Las Vegas is called the entertainment capital of the world but it's perhaps best known as Sin City. To attract tourists, they advertise with the slogan, what happens in Vegas? Yeah. Millions of people flock to Las Vegas each year hoping whatever they do in Vegas stays in Vegas. But as you drive down I-15 to Vegas and you enter nearing the city limits, you, you, you begin to see multiple religious billboards. Have you seen these things? Somebody's spending thousands of dollars every month to remind the tourist that God knows what happens in Las Vegas. 
I'm not sure if the billboards accomplish their intended effect, but I bet they make more than a few people uncomfortable because many people don't want to think about God while vacationing in Sin City. But you can't leave home without him. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Heavens is the word for sky or cosmos. Imagine how how the ancient writer thought about the sun, the moon, the stars. If I could hide on the moon, you'd be right there with me. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. God is God anywhere and everywhere. In the ancient world, it was believed that gods and goddesses ruled by locale. Every god had a territory, a sphere of influence. Every god, but this god. Verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Now, now this might be a metaphorical darkness of uncertainty or pain, a season in which the lights go out when faith and hope are replaced by, by fear and hopelessness. But it also might be a darkness to which one intentionally runs to hide from God. Somehow I don't think that will work. Sure enough, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. The darkness is as light to you. Are you familiar with the poem, The Hound of Heaven? If you like poetry, check it out this week. It's told from the perspective of someone running from God. But God chases him like a hound on the hunt. The poem's so intense, it's almost offensive. It was written by Francis Thomas. He was a brilliant man who knew something of the feeling of being far from God. Thompson became addicted to opium. He he lived on the street and almost starved to death before being taken in by a couple. The, The question is this. Is this hound of heaven from Psalm 139 good news or bad? It's amazing. You could read this song two different ways. Jonah dreaded God's pursuit and ran. The the Apostle Paul saw God's pursuit and celebrated. Romans 8.35 Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger or sword? Verse 38 For I'm convinced that neither death nor life neither angels nor demons neither the present nor the future nor any powers neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Two different interpretations of the same theological truth. But how you interpret them depends on what you think about God. Then the the tone of the psalm shifts in verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You, You knit me together in my mother's womb. Look, your mom may have told you that you were an accident. And maybe according to her plans, you were but humankind's accident is God's masterpiece. 
In Ephesians 2.10, Paul declares, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Handiwork translates a Greek word, poema. It's where we get our word poem. But, but, but the word has a broader definition than just a poem. Poema can be anything that's created, but it often it conveys an artistic implication, like work of art, which would include poems or, or paintings or sculptures. Paul says, you are God's masterpiece. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Fearfully could be translated awesomely, but but not awesome like we use the word in the 80s. Awesome in a biblical sense. Thinking about how God has created him leaves David in awe. Now, friends, I want to be really quick to say this isn't pride. This isn't arrogance. But I want you to see how this contrasts with what might be your fear. Is if you invite God in with his spotlight and he looks around to see what's really inside you, well, you're pretty sure God's not going to like what he sees, but you're not going to like what you see, and you're not, you, you could collapse. Uh-oh, that's not what happens to David. See, wouldn't you allow God to take a tour of you? This is the conclusion you come to. Oh, my word. I'm God's masterpiece. How's that for combating shame? Verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. These are probably additional metaphors for the womb. Long before the days of ultrasounds, God knew how you were growing. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. See, God is bound by neither space nor time. He was there for the beginning of your life. He's already there for, you, for your end. God has a different vantage point. Somehow in the mystery of eternity, all moments are present to God. Then David confesses, verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. See, when God's plans unfold before you, you'll learn to cherish them like David. But, but don't expect to understand them all. They're too big, too many. Verse 18, when I awake, I'm still with you. Do you feel God is with you when the alarm goes off first thing in the morning? Some days I think it's more likely for me to sin before I get out of bed than feel God's presence. But what if I could? What if I did? This verse stands out in the psalm because here he he reverses the theme from you are with me to I am with you. See, it's a confession, a commitment. David has already made clear there is nowhere you can hide from God. So, So verse 18 is David making a choice to embrace God's presence. He says, God is with me and that's right where I want him. And then verse 19 takes another turn. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. 
Oh, where the heck did that come from? Well, now we're getting a little information about the context of the psalm. In this moment, things aren't good for David. The, the harsh language of this section is called imprecation, imprecatory uh, psalms or psalms or portions of psalms in which the writer calls down curses on the enemies of God. And quite frankly, they've made Christians uncomfortable for centuries. But it shows again how honest the psalms can be. You'll note David leaves his anger in the hands of God. Verse 20, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. This verse implies the evildoers may be people who profess faith but live a lie. Verse 21, do not, do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. That David's hatred's hard to reconcile with the teaching of Jesus that calls us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. And frankly, time doesn't allow me today to explain imprecatory psalms. That's not what the main, that's not the main point of this psalm. So I won't belabor it. But I will say this. Before you pray like that, read Romans twelve seventeen through 21. See how that informs your prayers. And remember the words of Jesus who modeled a different kind of prayer from the cross in Luke 23, verse 34. He said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. Well, all that to say, one thing we can pick up from these imprecations is God wants us to pray honest prayers. As I think about what David's experience of, of allowing God to search him does, my hunch is, is that as God is sorting through David's soul and he sees some of the wounds and he, he, he sees some of the hurts, boy, that invariably will spark. Now, friends, there's grace for that. There's grace for that. And healing is available. Lewis, C.S. Lewis used to say, we should pray what's in us, not what ought to be in us. And you can pray these kinds of prayers if you want. I don't recommend it. But it's better to pray in you pray what's in you and get honest with God and let me tell you a secret about God God listens and sometimes God doesn't listen thank God he doesn't give us everything we pray for am I right he knows we can trust him now throughout Psalm 139 David has celebrated God's nosiness right in fact, David longs for it because David's found as God searches, God saves. As God looks, God loves. And because of this, David prays a prayer at the end of the song that is a personal prayer. I'm even going to call it a dangerous prayer. And it's a prayer, my friends, you've got to start praying right now. Verse 23, search me, God, and know my heart. It's an invitation. 
If you dare to pray this prayer, you invite God into the secret space of your soul. You are becoming vulnerable to him. People are often frightened to get married because she'll know how much of a slob you are. He'll know you have morning breath. She'll see how much television you really watch. But the reason you want to pray this prayer is you know the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. See, when I pray this dangerous prayer, search me, I invite God to scrutinize my life. I invite him to inspect what I do on a business trip, how I treat my spouse or my kids, what, what I look at online. No more privacy. Now the irony of praying a prayer like this is God sees everything anyway, right? If that's true, then why does David think we need to pray this prayer? God's already searched me. Well, it's because something powerful powerful happens when we invite God in. See, you don't pray this prayer so he can know what's in you. You pray it so you can know what's in you and surrender it to him. This prayer is revealing. I think my motives are pure, but I discover they're driven by pride. I think I'm acting in faith, only to find that it's fear. I think I'm showing leadership when I'm just being a bully. And we need God to help us here. Friends, here's why we can't lead the search party of our souls. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Well, that's a little hopeless. Until we read the next verse. Verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind. He can do this. He can sort through any kind of self-deception. Oh my word, our capacity for self-deception is grand, isn't it? There are a few reasons you want God to, to sort your soul. God, God will, 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 will help get past your self-serving bias. You know, if I'm leading that search party, if I'm holding that flashlight on different corners of my soul, I know where I want it to go. I know what I want to learn. See, often what I want to learn from God isn't what God wants to teach me. I may want to, I may want to learn how to be a success. He may want to teach me how not to need success. God leading the search party cuts right through self-righteousness. So often we think we got it all together. God leading the search party really helps us with, it helps us against self-flagellation. And that's true for a lot of us. We're talking here about shame. And here's the truth. If you're the one holding the flashlight, I, I don't know how long you'll focus on that thing. But focus on it in the wrong way. Such that you're constantly rehashing what you did. You're kicking yourself. You just can't let it go. Self-recrimination. Oh, no, no, no. You, you want God to lead this search party. Because he's going to redeem you from shame. He won't use it. God doesn't use shame. We use shame. We use shame. And, and if, as you're 
your soul's being inspected, if you've experienced shame, that's not God. It's not his voice. Maybe yours. Maybe the voice of someone from your past. Guess what? There's grace for that too. Healing is available. Look at the second part of the prayer. David prays, test me and know my anxious thoughts. Most people underestimate how much their their fear, their their anxious thoughts drive their decisions. A, A fear of not looking competent might drive you to fudge the truth, get defensive, play the blame game, take more credit than you deserve. And look, a lot of us are overcome with fear and we don't even know it. Do you know why? Because we don't recognize it it as fear. I'm not afraid. Yeah, we don't call it fear. You know what we call it? We call it stress. Well, what the holy heck do you think stress is? It's fear of failure. And my friend, if you ask God to search you, he will show you why you're afraid so you can get unafraid. So you'll stop being so miserable and stop making everyone else around you so miserable. David prays, test me. Oh, I don't like that verb. God, give me a trial where what's in me comes out of me. You see why I call this a dangerous prayer? Who prays like that? People who have nothing to hide. Women and men of faith who want to live their lives in freedom. Then, verse 24, see if there's any offensive way in me. Another way to translate word uh, offensive is grievous. It refers to that which grieves God, that, that which upsets him or makes him mad. David prays, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, the point of this prayer is this. Lord, help me to know what's in me so you can heal what's in me, so I can live and lead and love in a way that honors you and brings heaven on earth, brings up there, down here. Now, most of us appreciate our privacy. Some of us cherish it. And we're terrified because we know ugly things grow in the dark. We don't want God to shine his flashlight on the cavernous walls of our souls. Oh, but the wisest, the bravest among us realize the cave we fear to enter holds the treasure we seek. Look, maybe for you, even the thought of entering the cave with God brings up a feeling of dread. It is scary. Maybe you're so fiercely perfectionistic, you don't think you could take it. Maybe you're so scarred by guilt, you wonder if you'll come undone. But the fact of the matter is, some of us grew up in families and churches where shame was just another way of saying hello. We just slung it around at each other constantly. That's how we got things done. And if that's you, you may be shaken by the prospect of being exposed. But my friend, if you take a deep look into your soul, you will recognize you're really longing to be both seen and loved, but loved unconditionally. As Ruth Haley Barton explains, we long to be seen and celebrated for that which is deeply good and worthwhile in us. 
And we long for a love that's strong enough to contain our frailty and sinfulness. Something in us knows that such love is a transforming power. The problem is that most of us aren't willing to take the risk of being seen so completely. There's always something we're hiding for fear that we will be rejected in the end. Friends, what if we could find a way to allow the light of God's unconditional love to gently shine on our shortcomings, our our sin, our shame? What if we could pray a prayer that would tenderly expose every moment of our day, every compartment of our souls to God, the the good parts and the not-so-good parts, so we could heal our brokenness, forgive our sin, transform our character. Hear me, if you're struggling to identify what's in you, then invite the most loving person in heaven and on earth to help you do it. Pray this psalm this week, knowing the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure you seek. Pray with me. Lord, give us the faith to pray like David. Help us to realize the pros far outweigh the cons. I pray particularly for my friends here who wrestle with shame on a daily basis. And this challenge that I laid before them today feels impossible. But I pray they realize there's treasure in that there cave. I pray they they trust your love enough to realize this might be the path to healing our wounds, healing our hearts, such that shame doesn't have that effect on us anymore. And that could change the trajectory of our entire lives. Give them the faith to realize that's true. I pray also for my friends who, who don't know you, I don't know you very well. And they're wondering if they can pray a prayer like this. If they should dare pray a prayer like this. (laughs) Give them the faith to do just that. Give them the faith to ask you to search them. And heal them. May they come to know you like so many of the rest of us have and trust you with their whole lives. I pray it in the name of the King. Amen. Amen. (sighs) Friends, I want to give you some homework today. And um, do something a little different with one part of the homework. The first part of the homework is probably the simplest way for you to put, put David's psalm into practice. And it's simply to pray verses 23 and 24 of Psalm 139. Okay? That might be your first step. It's a a simple, easy way to begin this process. This is a prayer I've been praying for a long, 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 long time. And I pray it regularly. And I encourage you to do the same. Okay? Now, for those of you who are brave enough to go a little deeper, I'm going to call you to pray what's called the prayer of examine. 
I've taught about this prayer before. I'll say more about how to help you pray it in a minute. Um, but, but I want to talk about the way I practice this prayer. I need to say up front, I do not practice this in every season of my life. It's not a discipline I do always. I, I picked it up recently because I knew it would help me shine a light on my soul. Uh, let me tell you that the prayer of examen, which is an ancient prayer prayed for hundreds of years, um, but it has two key purposes. First, the prayer of examen helps me notice where God showed up in my day. See, when I pray, I pray looking back on my day to see where God was so that I can better see where God is. It really trains your eyes to be open to God's presence around you, just like Psalm 139. Now, the second purpose of the prayer is to invite the Holy Spirit to help me see what's true about me. It's to search my soul. It's a prayer for God to shine that spotlight of his love on my attitudes and my actions and my motives and my priorities. Not, not, not to make me feel bad, not, not to shame me, but to heal me and transform me. Okay? Now, it, it, it's a powerful prayer, and if you're interested uh, in learning more about how to pray it, I want to put you in touch with a guide. Uh, we made a guide uh, for this prayer that you can find on our website. You go to capitalchurch.com slash downloads. Um, we're going to post it and link it to the homework so you can get it easily. Um, it, it, this is, and I wrote this, this is just my way of, of explaining an ancient church discipline, a church uh, practice, a spiritual practice. And, and download this document, let it be a guide for you, and, and see what you learn. I, I divide uh, the prayer into four sections, uh, prepare, invite, explore, respond. Okay? It'll walk you right through how to do it. Put it into practice. See what God does. Now, many people do this discipline at the end of their day, looking back over the previous events. I usually do it in the morning, looking back over the day before. And I like to put my prayers in writing. I pray them on my laptop. I use a different Word document each day. So when I do this discipline, that's how it works for me. If it works for you like that, great. If you want to find another way, great. But if you want to unearth the deep things of God, this might be the practice for you in this season. Because it unearths the deep things in your soul. This prayer will enable you to go back and see where God missed, where you missed God throughout a day. And when I do this discipline, I find my eyes get open to his work when I didn't know he was working. This discipline will teach you to thank God for something in every part of your day. And that's transformative in itself. I got to say, when I look back on my day and I see where God was and I wasn't paying attention, my gratitude changes my attitude. And praying this prayer in this season has led me to a stunning realization. Friends, my life is not as bad as I thought it was. That's not nothing. But, but God also uses this prayer to make me a better me. I ask him to show me where I fail to love someone. I ask him to, to help me reflect on my strong emotions that I experienced during the day, what irritated me, what worried me, what discouraged me. Now, when I reflect on those emotions, I bring each circumstance and each conversation to God in prayer. And healing takes place. But, you, you want to know what I think of this discipline? This practice? I hate it. I hate it so much, I don't even feel like qualifying that phrase. I hate the prayer of a demon. But the truth is, 
I also love the prayer of excitement. Uh, let me be more specific. I, I dread doing the discipline before I do the discipline. But I love the way I feel after I do it. And I love the way I live after I do it. I've learned that the cave I fear to enter holds the treasure I seek. I dread praying the prayer of examine every day because praying the prayer properly will, will require me to comb back over the events of my day, covering minutes and moments. Some of them I'd much rather forget. I don't want to go there. It was miserable when it happened. Why would I want to revisit it? And, and I'm going to be honest, it's exhausting. It is probably the most straining spiritual practice I've ever practiced. Why would anyone want to do something that exhausting? Well, ask an athlete or a crazy mom on a Peloton. Why do they exhaust themselves spinning and spinning and spinning? It's so they can be stronger and healthier when they're not. Got it? Prayer of Examine. Here's a book for the week. Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. Now, I like this book. Here's what this book does. This book takes spiritual formation and directly shows us how it's directly tied to our emotions and our experiences from the past, those wounds that we received, uh, the the joys and, and the failures of our past. And it shows us how, oh, we might need to do a little bit of a bit of digging into our past so we can carve out for ourselves a better future in King Jesus, okay? It's a good book. Check it out. Stand with me. If you want some help to work through your soul, take advantage of Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. There's an image we created for you. You can put it on your phone, put it on your desktop. Um, commit this to memory and pray this regularly. I know I do, okay? The image on the screen and the graphic that follows are available for you to download from our website. So be watching for them. We'll post them later today. Um, as always, if you'd like to receive prayer, you can send us an email, care at capitalchurch.com. There's a group of people who love praying over your needs, so, so do that, okay? Take us up on this. We care deeply about what's going on in your world. Here's what I want to pray for all of you. My friends, may you find the courage to invite God to search you so he can help you and heal you and love you with the love you've only dreamed of. Thanks for coming to church today. Grace and peace.